Hello, welcome to Unbiased with me, Darshi Harindra. I help organizations rethink how they use data and new technologies in a compliant, unbiased, and inclusive way. I'm on a mission to rehumanize technology so that we can max out on all the potential benefits it brings whilst keeping people very much at the center of its oversight and success. Now, this podcast is very much centered on the human side of the equity and inclusion equation. Through guests sharing their stories of how bias has affected and continues to affect their day-to-day lives, we can get a glimpse into the beautifully complex fabric interwoven into our communities. And we can learn about some of their work in trying to address or combat the ill effects of some of those biases. Joining me today is Arti Agrawal. Arti's work is driven by two core passions, science and social justice, and she's extremely proficient in both. Arti is an adjunct associate professor in the School of Electrical and Data Engineering at the University of Technology, Sydney, UTS. She is also the CEO and founder of Vividata, a diversity and inclusion consulting company and she's been winning awards over the past two years, recognizing her contribution to diversity and inclusion, particularly in the scientific arena. Vividata means diversity in Sanskrit, and it's a certified social enterprise that gives back 50% of its profits to community causes. The company epitomizes her vision to globally advance and mainstream diversity and inclusion initiatives in all sectors of society. In setting up Vividata, Arti is guided by her lived intersectional experiences of being a female immigrant from India, person of color, physicist, and proud member of the global LGBTQIA community. To this, she brings years of learned experience in a myriad of diversity and inclusion roles. She has held positions as Director of Women in Engineering at UTS, along with holding a substantive Associate Professorship in Electrical Engineering. And whilst there, Artie led a disruptive policy change in UTS admissions, which led to a 10% increase in female undergraduate enrollments in engineering and IT. And she was previously the Director of Inclusion, Diversity and Involvement at blood cancer charity, the Anthony Nolan Trust. Whilst there, she created transgender policies that reach staff, volunteers and bone marrow donors alike, balancing privacy and GDPR considerations alongside equality and non-discrimination legislation considerations. Today, RT leverages her technical expertise in science, engineering, technology, and mathematics, STEM, along with lived experience and work in diversity and inclusion to help large organizations with their EDI journey. RT, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Darshi. It's lovely to be here. RT, share more with us about what life was like for you growing up and some of your earlier experiences as an Indian immigrant woman and member of the LGBTQIA plus community, both at home and in the workplace. Um, I'm interested to know how, if at all, those experiences shaped your desire to work on addressing EDI, on addressing equity, diversity and inclusion. Sure, I'm uh, happy to share this. And it's a mixture of privilege and problems, shall we say. 
So I I grew up in in Delhi, which is a big city, and I had all the comforts that go with exposure and um, opportunity in a big city. I was born in an affluent middle class family, so I had access to financial opportunities. My parents and family were well educated, so I had access to education. And this privilege was very helpful in setting up my life and helping me form a career. On the other hand, there were problems. So I am gay, and at that time, I didn't know the word for gay in my own language, which is Hindi. And there was a lot of homophobia in society at that time, and we didn't really talk about being gay at all. So there were no people who were out as gay in my school, in my neighborhood, in my family. And at at a stage which was quite early, I realized that I couldn't talk about being gay. So I internalized the homophobia and thought I was quite abnormal. There was something wrong with me. But so there was this uh, mixture of, as I said, problem and privilege. I moved to the UK after finishing my PhD at IIT Delhi, which was a very nice and elitist institution in some ways, but also a very tough institution to study at. It prepared me for a career in STEM. And when I reached the UK, I again found a mixture of privilege and problem. So I had access to a very large scientific community and I was enjoying my work in STEM, but there was a massive cultural divide between people of color and white people. There was a lot of homophobia in the STEM community. There was misogyny and race was something that we didn't talk about. We were supposed to be post-racial. So on one hand, I was enjoying doing my work technically. On the other hand, I found it strange that as a person of color and as, as a gay person, I couldn't really bring my whole self to work. So again, I was uh, struggling in some spheres and doing well in other spheres. And I found that the community within STEM, within the university sector, etc., we had a lot of black students, but we did not have black faculty. We did not have any disabled people in the faculty. We had very few disabled students and so on. So I found that there was a real lack of diversity. And even when we did have some diverse people, we had people of color, such as Asians, who were in the faculty and so on. We weren't really inclusive. So the people who got ahead in in work and were progressing and reaching leadership positions tended not to be diverse. So it was a strange situation, and it it sort of inspired me to work towards equity, diversity, and inclusion, because I felt that we should be serving the community, and the leadership should be representative of the community. And therefore, I started doing work on setting up staff networks for LGBT people, for women, as well as for people of color, both inside the institution and outside. I wanted opportunity to be equitable and not just based on which group you belong to. Um, and, and that sort of led me on my journey to diversity, equity, and inclusion, which continues till today. Privilege and problem, uh, that articulation, I think, is something that a lot of people uh, will resonate with, I'm sure. Uh, and the other thing that you that, that is brought out so much through you sharing your, your story is managing the the problems that came with with it seemed particularly um in london that you're now dealing with that intersection of being a woman a, a woman of color and a gay woman when you were looking to to implement changes and again i think you really highlight the fact that it's so many 
people that are suffering some of those problems that end up having to sort of take on the burden of um, of doing something about it and helping a, a broader community as a result. But um, you refer to working both within your community uh, or within your workplace and outside of it. Through your time, Artie, did you find allies to work alongside you or build out uh, a community or a more inclusive community um, with respect to seeking out that support as a gay woman that you weren't getting inside the workplace outside of it? So that's a really good question, Darshi. And the answer is a little bit complex. And it, it refers to the intersectionality in, in both my identity and that of many others. When I was trying to set up networks within the STEM workplace, I found that people would respond to one aspect of identity. So they wanted a, a network on race or a network on gender. But it was difficult to get a network which combined both things or three things at the same time. And certainly the homophobia was was pretty bad. But when I went outside my workplace and try to set up communities or get involved in communities, for example, I was part of the Gay Women's Network. And I remember the first time I attended an event there in London, I was the only person of color in the room. And when I entered the room, everybody turned around to look at me. And I thought, oh my God, what am I doing here? Am I in the wrong place? And it felt really uncomfortable. It took time to understand that there was no malice, there was no um, exclusion intended. It was just that people of color, women of color, weren't coming to the network. And so it, it became a situation of when I went to the gay world, it was very white and did not have enough diversity, racial or ethnic cultural diversity in it. And when I went to, say, my Indian community, it, was, it could be very homophobic at times. So there was no place where I could be my whole self. At work, I needed to be just a scientist. And there were some issues being a woman, being a person of color, and certainly a lot of issues being gay. And in the Indian community, you couldn't be gay. In the gay community, it was difficult to be accepted as Asian. So there was no place where you could be your whole self. But then within the Gay Women's Network, the great thing was that I was allowed and helped and supported in setting up a subgroup called the Gay Women's Network Multicultural, which was a subgroup for women of color. And through the subgroup, I had allies, people who were like myself and white allies, with whom we set up the subgroup. And this gave career development opportunities, professional development opportunities. But also it was a bridge between the subgroup and the main network. So it created a safe space for people of color, women of color who were LGBTQIA+. And it also created a cultural understanding between women of color and white women so that we could ask each other questions about culture, about tradition and understand each other. And as a result, the whole network became more diverse. Women of color would come to the network events and white women would come to the cultural events that we were organizing. So it just led to a more inclusive, more diverse environment for everyone. And you're right, it could not have happened without allies. Yes, that's a really, it feels like a really uh, good uh, mini ending to that story that was laced, laced with uh, laced with that, that complexity. And, and I'm sorry for uh, 
the the isolation that I imagine or for whatever you must have been feeling through that time I imagine it would have been a drain mentally so when you hear it back and it was something I know that is probably now a few years past I hope I hope you look back on that as um as a real achievement but as is so often the way um, with the success of these things is it just comes through building those connections and that understanding and cracking through maybe some of that the ignorance as well you know to that example of yours of going into that the 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 gay network room and it was just this head-turning moment because you just look so different to everyone else in the room uh, rather than malice and that in and of itself will be something that I know um, a lot of people that listen to this podcast will will resonate a lot with. You're now based in Australia take me through that journey and did you notice any particular differences again making that move and did you was it an element of you're able to build on what you had uh created in the UK and you had you you were armed with more tools and your resilience tool belt um and your skills tool belt to address things when you came to Australia or was it a different kettle of fish again a really good question so i would say that i had expected australia to be very similar to britain in culture and it wasn't and those are the things that you learn they're both english speaking countries and they have deep ties of course however australia is a very different kettle of fish as i learned and cultural adapt adaptation was extremely important so in my years in london i had learned to understand what people meant when they said something because often Uh, you know when people say something culturally you have to decode what they mean, really mean and in australia i had to relearn this so definitely my time in 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 london having moved there from india the kind of shift that i had to adjust to did help me and give me a mindset of being able to adjust again from london to to sydney but i found that in terms of diversity and inclusion again there was a lot to learn So with Australia as you know Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are the original inhabitants of the country have been disenfranchised and there is a uh, um, a major tension between um, Australians and between the past of how Australia was colonized and what's evolving today so there's a lot of work happening about reconciliation and giving enough rights to Aboriginal people but when you come as an outsider you learn this anew because you've not been exposed to it you've not been necessarily taught it and certainly you don't understand it as much but having lived here i'm learning this and i also understand that it's important to wherever you wherever you live to understand the context of that place and to try to contribute in a positive way to it so i'm learning the concept of what country means and country means different things in australia specifically to aboriginal people but to someone like me who's a migrant country is is a really important and emotional concept i left india because i couldn't live a dignified life as a gay person and being gay was a crime in india till a few years ago so i feel like a refugee almost someone who's been displaced and to come to a place which offers you shelter and lets you stay here country is is a magical word on the other hand i don't belong to country in the aboriginal sense 
because I have not been given shelter by the Gadigal people on whose land I live. So what does country really mean? It's opened up more questions to me. And I hope that in my journey in the time to come, I will understand more and become a better person for all of this. Artie, thank you so much for articulating that. As someone that was born and brought up in the UK and made a move to Australia uh, about nine years nine years ago, I also came just expecting a sort of extension of the UK almost. It's such an often trodden path, um, but it's, it is very different and in particular for that reason of one sort of moving moving from the the colonizer to the colonized and two like you I, I have to share that I knew sort of almost nothing of the true history of the aboriginal and torres strait islanders and the first nations people so that that is is a massive shift and I think it's very easy for people who haven't had that experience to um to sort of forget um or to kind of to, to not really understand the nuance that comes with um living here um but one big distinction i think is is your experiences as a gay woman and as a migrant originally from india because i think I've been reflecting, I reflect a lot on this, on the idea of maybe not so much country, but home. Um, and as I, I recently moved to Singapore and, and I reflected a lot on, you know, is there a capital H home? Is there a small H home? You know, it's interesting that you raise, I, I, I still tie a lot back to, you know, to the place of your birth, but you raise just really interesting insights on, well, what if the place of your birth is actually a place that's illegal for you to even be in if you want to be your authentic self. So I uh, I really reflect on that just to 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 say in support of of the journey that is a lifelong one for for many. But it's the first time I've sort of heard that from the context of weaving in so many issues from every single place um, and how you therefore have to to work to create that home um, wherever you are. And I kind of want to lead that into what your EDI work looks like in Australia. And I want to touch on a perception that I have as someone that was, born, as I said, born and raised in the UK and then moved to Australia. But I still found a markedly less diverse environment in Australia compared to London in particular in the UK. And I have found as a practitioner in the diversity and inclusion space that the profession itself is markedly lacking in diversity. And so, and we're really seeing, I think in the last, I've been encouraged in the last sort of year or two, at least of firstly, that the notions of intersectionality finally taking a little bit more center stage in DEI discourse. Um, but we're also, we are seeing this call for an increased involvement of people with, you know, quote unquote, lived experience of coming from a particular underrepresented group. And we've heard of how you sit at many intersections. But we've also seen through your story play out that you and a lot you like a lot of people with those lived experiences undertake quite a lot of that unpaid burden of 
trying to at least have a positive impact on the community around them. But that in and of itself doesn't then automatically make you an actual diversity and inclusion professional. So can you just talk us through how you branched out and carved an actual a career in the EDI space for yourself, separate to being a scientist and separate to just being a woman of colour, a gay woman of colour trying to find a home for herself and a space that she can be her authentic self? I think it would be very hard to separate these things out, but um, I'll talk about these aspects. And I hear you when you say how you're trying to define home. Is it with a capital H? Is it, is it with a small H? Where really home is? I, it resonates so much with me. I think your summary was more beautiful than anything I could have said. Uh, but yeah, to start with, I think Australia can seem less diverse than other countries or, or some places like London and so on. In terms of its diversity and inclusion presence in space, I think we'll find that countries like the US seem to be ahead simply because there's a lot of legislation and legal action that takes place in the, in the US. And that drives a lot of work on diversity and inclusion to, to protect employers or to protect employees, whichever group you belong to. And that often leads to change happening there faster than other places or earlier than other places. And then you have countries like the UK where, I mean, the UK has a colonial past. So they've colonized, they had colonized so many places. They've got migrants from all those places coming in. And because of that, there is a lot of diversity. And when you have so much diversity, you don't have much choice. You have to then go on that journey. And that journey can be bumpy. Australia has had, I would say, slightly less uh, diverse migration, but then I'm not an expert on on migration per se. And so, you know, your question about how did I move from just my lived experience doing unpaid work to doing to doing this as a profession and moving away from science, the fact is that it was science that brought me to diversity and inclusion. You know, when I was doing my work in the U in in India, it was okay the diversity was lacking in terms of we only had Indian people. We didn't really have people from other countries quite often working in India. We didn't, we did not have any inclusion of LGBT people. So I sensed a lack of diversity, but I didn't articulate it. And in the UK, I, I saw the number of women doing STEM was much fewer than the number of women doing STEM in, in India, which was a little bit of a shock. And even when I was teaching in class, I would have 100 students in my first year class and of which very few would be women. This was very different from India. So I realized that just being in a Western country did not mean that diversity was better. In some situations, yes. In others, not so much. And as I mentioned before, there was homophobia, there was racism and so on. So science brought me face to face with these inequalities and these discrimination and other problems. And that's why I started working on these. Initially, my work was, as you said, unpaid and as a volunteer, something which was a labor of love. I wanted to change things. But doing this work gave me confidence. It gave me knowledge. And as a scientist, I was trained to look at data, to find data, to research things. So I was using research and data a lot in the work that I was doing. And I moved to Australia because the position that I got here was a lovely split. 50% of my time was as director of women in engineering. 
So I was able to work on diversity and equity half my time. And the other half of my time was my science research. So it was this perfect balance for me. And in my now paid role, partly, I was able to use my skills on data analysis. I was able to look up reports and spend enough time researching um, activities that had taken place, what worked, what didn't work, into implementing programs, innovation and implementation. So that's how the journey as a diversity and inclusion professional, rather than just something you do out of love and interest, it became very professional because there had to be outcomes which were evidenced, which were measurable for your employer and for other stakeholders. You couldn't just say, okay, I, I tried really hard. You actually had to show that you made a change. And um, after the university, or rather, while I was at university, I decided I want to spend more time doing diversity and inclusion. So I converted my position to an adjunct position so I can continue my science research. However, I spend most of my time now on my consultancy, where I apply all my knowledge in this area and my skills to trying to improve things a little bit. Well, you really are talking my language now, RT, because um, people listening will know um, that my focus at the moment is on that intersection of data and diversity and inclusion, uh, and also um, my background in the in the technology industry ha- also has melded into to DNI when we're looking at emerging technologies at AI. Um, I'm really interested to to take this moment now that I have a have a bona fide scientist on on the show to whom uh, research and evidence is is the the bedrock of both the scientific research and DEI. Artie, share with me the ways in which those foundational elements of that research and data can translate into innovation. I guess there's two there's two prongs. There's how how you approach diversity and inclusion with that kind of data lens and how you approach data and inclusion, diversity and inclusion consultancy in an innovative way using technology. Because in so many other areas, we're really seeing uh, a push to enhance the way we do work through technology. Uh, But when it comes to, and particularly sort of learning and development and training and informing, we kind of haven't moved the needle very much on, you know, a webinar or a PowerPoint presentation on certain things. Tell me uh, your thoughts on this. Right. So this is the the money question, right? This is the fun question, really. Um, All right. So I think scientific training gives you the ability to think critically, to analyze data, to find data, to analyze it to look at different methodologies and then select an appropriate methodology and to always create um, a solution which you can measure and you can say whether it's working or not working and what needs to change. So I bring that approach to diversity and inclusion. And a big part of that is to look for data. So when we're trying to find solutions to problems, so for example, the admissions policy change for UTS, Australia had had a percentage of female enrollments in engineering stuck at about 12% for a large uh, large period of time. 
And then that increased, you know, it varies between 12 to 16 percent for the last 20 to 30 years, in spite of such programs as scholarships, mentoring, outreach, etc. It was a stubborn number that was not changing. So all the data that we looked at showed us that we could do more outreach, we could do more scholarships, all of that. It was not going to take us above 16 to 17, 18 percent. So data showed us what was working and how, where it was um, hitting a ceiling and what it would not crack. That was one part of it. The other part was we looked at the data which showed us the correlation between student marks and student performance at university. So, the, you know, the entry marks from high school and the performance at university, and there was no correlation. So high high school marks did not mean the student would do well at university, and low high school marks did not mean that they would do poorly at university either which is what informed the decision that we made about the policy change for admissions. And it was the data analysis that we did which made us recommend changes that would increase their enrollment by about 10%. We were trying to get to a threshold number. So everything that we did around this policy was evidence and data-driven. We analyzed trends for many, many, of, of, several, of several years, in fact, more than two decades, to then present a solution. And we had a way to measure how the solution would enfold, unfold. You know, what would it look like? Was it working? Was it not working? So I think that's what we that's what I like to bring to diversity and inclusion, that sort of thinking. And in many cases, you know, we don't collect a lot of data on diversity and inclusion. So the missing data is also an important piece. We may not have information about groups of people. We may not know how they feel about certain things which shows us that we need to collect that data. We need to see why they're not included, why we don't know what they think. But to answer your second question, which is how do we make tech more inclusive and how do we use tech in diversity and inclusion? So with Vividhita, what I'm interested in is, is making tech inclusive because if tech like artificial intelligence, machine learning, et cetera, is not inclusive, we are creating problems for the future. That's why it's really important to consider how to make tech inclusive and emerging tech to be really equitable, et cetera. How can we use it in diversity and inclusion? You know, you referenced webinars and PowerPoints and so on. That's been the age old way of uh, giving out trainings and education for a long time. So one of the things that we're doing at Vividta is using virtual reality. And we're trying to see whether we can create an experience of virtual reality for a person. Now, you and I, we're both women. Do we know what it's like to be a man? Or does a man know how it's to be a woman? You know, that saying, walk in another person's shoes, it's all very well to say that. How do you actually experience what someone very different from you experiences? But with virtual reality, we can actually do that. So we're doing research on creating experiences which allow a person to understand and see the world from the perspective of someone very different from themselves. And it's a completely immersive experience for them to feel everything that that other person would feel. So we can then break certain perceptual barriers and cognitive barriers, which we can't with our traditional tech, which emerging tech like virtual reality, augmented reality allows us to do. And, and that's what we're doing. And it's really exciting to be at the forefront and doing these things. That is super exciting. And yeah, virtual reality is is one of the things that um, 
I've been exploring as well in that space, but I hadn't thought about it in the context of that immersive um, experience of living through another's, another's shoes. But I think the more people that we have in the arena, just thinking about these things and trying to do those things differently is something that's just so needed in the industry. So very, very excited to follow the work you do on that front and with everything that you do um, with Vividata. And before I close it out, the last thing I really just wanted to touch on to really bring bring light to, to, to your own consultancy is noting the fact that it is a social enterprise and 50% of your profits go to social causes. One, I just think it's really well worth pointing out when people, I I speak to a lot of people that are looking to branch out into these things and and looking at the different sort of corporate structures and stuff like that. And it's just uh, a great way to be a sort of an enterprise that is making profit, but actually can put back to those causes. Um, but I just wanted to, to be able to share, um, if you could for us, Arti, a bit more about that side of the ethos that drives Vividata and where you have been deploying funds to date and, and how that all sits with uh, the ecosystem that you're trying to promote through Vividata. Sure. And um, I'm glad to speak about this. So I think it's really important to recognize that business doesn't have to be about being less ethical or being so profit-driven that you are burning everything in in your way and creating a planet that's terrible and a society that's unjust. Business can be a force for good. That's what I truly believe in. And that's the ethos that I'm doing with Vivid. That's what we're trying to live. It's the reason why we became a social enterprise right from the start, because we want our business to be aligned with our values, right? So we give 50% of our profit back and the model that we use is to give our time in kind. So some of the research I mentioned about virtual reality, we do that for free right now with PyLabs at UTS and we do certain projects such as those for free and I give my time in, in kind. I also give my time in kind to projects of mentoring students Uh, black students as well as women of color who are trying to enter STEM or make careers in STEM. And I do that with professional bodies. That's my way of trying to encourage diversity in STEM and in in society in, in general, but in particular in STEM, because obviously I have a background in that area and I understand the needs of that area. Other social enterprises often deploy cash and and that's fine. Currently, our model is um, giving time in kind. Well, as far as I'm concerned, I think time is our most precious commodity. And but really great to understand. And as I said, just to highlight the social enterprise model as a model that could work for so many that may not know about it and to understand the breadth of or the scope that giving back um, to social causes can comprise. So, Artie, I will be following you with such keen interest, and I hope our paths continue to cross in the future. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time to chat on Unbiased. Thank you so much for having me, and Darshi, I look forward to us working together. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbiased with me, Darshi Harindra. I derive so much energy and learn so much from speaking to such inspiring guests and amplifying diverse voices. 
If you feel the same way, please do subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you consume your content from and follow me and the podcast so you can get all the latest episodes as they drop. I'd also love to hear from you. What works for you? What do you like to hear more of? You can connect with me via my website, darshiharindra.com. Until next time, stay open, 